Hi, this is Stephen Adair, pastor of Grace Christian Fellowship here in Odessa, Texas. And I want to thank you for tuning in today to our podcast. I hope this message encourages you, gives you hope, and reminds you that you are loved. Good morning. How many of y'all are here for desserts? It's all right. No shame. No, it's, good. it's all good. That's what I'm here for. I mean, to do this too, but then to do that. Uh, I really hope you stick around. The dessert auction is a uh, super fun event. Uh, we always have a good time. And so um, a meal is provided, so you don't have to uh, uh, come to just bid on desserts, but you can come and eat. Most of you will go out to eat anyway, but instead of going out to eat, just eat here and uh, yeah, enjoy that. So, But uh, hopefully you stick around. Uh, we are so glad that you are here. My name is Stephen, and I'm the uh, lead pastor here at Grace. And as always, it is an honor to have each and every one of you. We are uh, uh, in the middle of a series in the book of Acts. Today we are in Acts uh, chapter 7, kind of. We'll be in 6 a little while and then over into 7. Um, actually going all the way into chapter 8, verse 1. Yeah, so uh, just kind of booking right along this week. But we are looking specifically at the story of this incredible man who has the best name in the entire Bible. It's the guy named Stephen. So good. So good. Uh, growing up, this is a, a true story about me. I don't know if it just shows, maybe I'm just not the smartest kid around. Um, I always thought that this guy's name was Stephen. Because my name is Stephen, and it is spelt like Stephen should be spelt, with a V. I don't know what happened in biblical days, but this Stephen guy spells his name wrong. But for the sake of clarity, I will not refer to him all morning long as Stephen, even though I want to. We'll call him Stephen. But Stephen is an incredible man in the Bible. And I don't just say that because we share a name. I say that because it is just truth. He is the, the almost epitome of what it looks like to be a New Testament Christian pursuing the life that Jesus called us to. It is for all Christians one goal. To be as much like Jesus as we can be. That is ultimately what we are all about. It is the very definition of to be a Christian, to be like Christ. That is who we are. It is what we are called to be, to be as much like Jesus as we can be. Now, we can never achieve that on our own. We don't have it within our human abilities to be that, to be like uh, Christ to the extent that Jesus was himself, but since all of us, since all of us are indwelled by the Spirit of God, if we have called Jesus as our Savior, then we all have an element of Christ within us. All throughout the book of Acts, we will see this reoccurring theme that has come up already over time and will continue to come up. And it's this, this, uh, this section of, of words that come together to mean so much, and it is filled with the Spirit. Over and over again throughout Acts, we will see this, filled with the Spirit, that somebody was filled with the uh, Spirit. Peter was filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, whatever he preaches. Stephen, as we'll see in a moment, is filled with the Spirit of God. Paul, will later on, and here in a couple of weeks, will be filled with the Spirit of God. Whenever people are filled with the Spirit of God, incredible things begin to happen. Now, 
I talked about this a while back, but I want to come back to it a little bit as we get started looking at Stephen. Every time it says that they were filled with the Spirit, it does not mean that they have been emptied uh, of the Spirit as they've gone through their ministry. Um, Philip, for example, and Peter and all these guys on the day of Pentecost, we read that they were filled with the Spirit of God. And then throughout the book, we'll read again that they were filled with the Spirit of God. It's not saying that they had emptied themselves of the Spirit. It is to say that in those particular moments, the Spirit of God was alive and was well and was in abundance in that moment. I don't want you to read the book of Acts um, and, and see those moments and think to yourself, man, what am I doing wrong? Like, what am I doing wrong to where I don't, I don't receive this spiritual fulfillment like th- these guys do? I don't, I, don't, I don't receive the, the power that these guys had uh, and the fulfillment of the spirit that the book of Acts speaks into. Because it's my, my belief, and I think it's, I, I'll be bold enough to say it's the right one this morning. I don't say that very often, but this is the right belief. That once you are filled with the spirit of God, you are forever filled with the spirit of God. There is not a moment in which the Spirit of God abandons you or leaves you or says, eh, you're just not doing good enough today. You're only going to get a little bit of me. No, no, no. That's not the way that God operates. It's definitely not what Jesus came to die for. Jesus came to die to give life and life abundant. And that abundant life is the life that you have all of the time, not just some of the time. That's what Jesus accomplishes for us. It's not to say that some days aren't going to be better than other days. I mean, this is, this is humanity we're talking about. There will be days in which we don't feel great. There will be days in which we don't feel filled. But that doesn't mean that God has left us. That doesn't mean that God has, has created a void within us. What that means is that we are up against the real world. And until Jesus comes and reestablishes the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven, we will experience some days in which we just don't feel like everything is great. And we kind of need to wrestle with that first, because as we look at the life of Stephen, or this, this moment in Stephen's life, we can really quickly kind of almost become depressed. Because as great of a man as Stephen was... Stephen dies. Oh, I really was hoping to get like a collective awe at the end of that statement. Aww. Stephen dies. And it is kind of this unfortunate moment because Stephen could have been so he could have been such an impact on the kingdom. I, I sometimes think, like, especially studying uh, for this sermon, I, I kept thinking to myself, like, what more could he have done? Like if he In the chapter we're about to read, he preaches an incredible sermon. It's the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts, and a book that is filled with sermons. Stephen preaches the longest one. That's where I get it from, is is that Stephen. It's just hereditary to our name. We're long-winded. But Stephen speaks a great, lengthy sermon in the book of Acts, and it leads him to his death. What, like, don't get any ideas, right? We're done! Pop! Start throwing rocks on stage. That hurts. But Stephen starts his journey not in a place, in a position of preacher. In fact, we saw last week, Stephen starts his ministry taking care of the widows. That's the place that Stephen begins. He begins in a place of servant, of of being a servant, of taking care of those who need to be fed. And he's appointed by by the group of of apostles to be one of these men who take care of 
of the widows in the area, and we see something happen. We don't know the time. We don't know how much time passes between him being appointed as one of those people and uh, verse 8. But we do know that he has experienced some ministry over some years. And here's how the Bible, this is is how the Bible describes him beginning in uh, Acts 6, verse 8. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate him. Okay, I want to pause right there and just tell you one little fact that will play into um, Acts chapter 9. We're We're about to meet a very important character here at the end of this sermon. His name is Saul. Now, all of you who are biblical scholars and all went to seminary know that Saul doesn't stay Saul, but he becomes Paul. That's right. The man that we attribute the majority of our New Testament writings from, Paul. Now, Paul will make an appearance here at the end of this sermon. He'll just briefly, and it's not a good one, but he will be there. But Paul is probably from the area that Stephen is preaching in right now. So where we read this, uh, the synagogue of freed slaves, that is probably the synagogue that, that Saul, before he turned Paul, that Saul was trained in, was raised in, and was learned in, was probably in the synagogue of free slaves. Now, why is that, in, why is that interesting? It's interesting because at the end of this sermon, we're going to see that Saul is going to be there when Stephen dies. In fact, at the end of this sermon, we're going to see that Saul approves of Stephen's death. He's not just there, but he approves of what is happening. I want you to know this now. Because we live in a society and a culture that does a really good job of placing people in positions throughout their lives. And we will oftentimes say that these people are not good enough, they're not worthy, they're not powerful enough or strong enough to really be influential on any level. Now, internally in church, we don't want to say that we do that, but we do. Before you allow people to lead small groups or Sunday school or other aspects of ministry, before we allow leading to happen, we want to know that you are capable of handling the position that we are entrusting you with. And so there are some people that we say, man, you would make a great leader in Bible school or a great preacher or a great whatever. And there's other people that we will look at and say, you don't meet that. And that's okay, I think, because I think that in the kingdom of God, we all have different gifts to accomplish different things. Some of you, if I gave you the microphone right now and said you you could stand on this stage and say something, you wouldn't even get up out of your seat. You'd be terrified of the possibility of having to stand in front of a crowd and say a word, right? Are you in the room? So you won't even answer me because you're afraid I'm going to call you out. (laughs) If I shake my head, he might actually try something. We're all, we all have different gifts. We all have different things that God has given us to go out and to serve the community. Not all of us were called to be in front of people speaking. And that is great because sometimes there are other aspects of ministry that speakers are not good at doing. Like listening a lot of the times. But this interesting beginning of, of this story where we see that Stephen is in the synagogue of free slaves, and later on we meet this man named Saul who will become such an influential member in the New Testament church moving forward, and that he comes from the same, possibly the same synagogue that Stephen is preaching in is not by happenstance. I think that this is God 
actively moving in the scenario, creating a watch point, saying that where some people thought my gospel would end, in the, in the killing of Stephen, people thought that this, that this will be done. We can kill Stephen. The word will get out. Don't preach the gospel. Don't talk about God. Don't talk about Jesus. Because if you do, you die. That's what they're trying to establish. They're trying to say, if you're going to be a preacher of the gospel, then we will kill you. And they're going to do it in such a robust way that the message will get out to everyone. But what's crazy is the person that they're seeking approval from at the end of this sermon is going to be Saul. Everybody looks to Saul and says, did we do it? When they lay the coat of Stephen at Saul's feet, Saul looks over the dead body of Stephen approvingly. This is the guy that everybody else is trying to please. It's crazy to me that God says, ha, you don't know how I'm going to turn this story. Where man is seeking the approval of Saul, because he was a notorious Christian killer, where man is seeking the approval of Saul, God is seeking an opportunity to open Saul's eyes to the kingdom of God, both figuratively and literally. Some of you this morning sit in this room thinking to yourself that you have no role to play and the, and the greatness of the kingdom of God. You wonder, what is it that I exist to do? What good am I to this movement? I don't know how my skills will play in to what God is wanting to do in his church here at Grace, in Odessa, in Texas, and beyond. I don't see how, my, how, how I can have an impact. Well, Stephen started by serving widows. Stephen started by serving food and somehow finds himself preaching in the synagogue that is home to, what, to who will become one of the greatest preachers of all time, Paul. So he's preaching in the synagogue of free slaves and some people start to debate him. Now verse 10, none of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, we heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. And this roused the people, the elders and the teachers of the religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. Stephen was arrested and tried on a lie. Does that sound familiar? Jesus was arrested and tried on a lie. Stephen has a really, good, uh, a really good starting point to being like Christ. It might not be the one that he wants, but it's looking relatively familiar. The lying witnesses said, this man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. I don't know if y'all have ever looked at yourself in the mirror and you're just glowing Probably not, right? The only time that I've ever heard anybody actually use that phrase was whenever my wife was pregnant. 
Why do we say that? Why, why is it that we tell pregnant women that they're glowing? What does that even mean? Now, I love my wife. She was beautiful whenever she was pregnant. She is beautiful now. But never once did I ever look at my wife and think to myself, you are glowing. Mostly because I'm a realistic person. And light has never just shot out of my wife. It's never happened. Y'all laugh at me. Are you saying that you've seen this before? Or are you just in agreement, but I'm the only one brave enough to say anything? Or stupid enough, depending on which direction you're coming from. But here's an instance where Scripture says that the people began to stare at Stephen because he is glowing. Now, it got me thinking, is this like pregnant woman glow? Do y'all not read the Bible the same way I do? Like, y'all aren't reading these words thinking to yourself, why would they write it that way? It could have been a lot of things, right? Like, he could, like they could have been staring at Stephen because he was red-faced. Like, I, okay, I've seen people get honestly red-faced. I have a friend of mine who has a dad. Whenever he gets really angry, he has a spot in his head that pulses. Anybody else have, have one of those people around them? Like, you know whenever they're mad because there's a, like, you can see physically, see the anger in their head just pulsing. And you're like, oh, he's about to blow. Like, literally. I, I, like, I could get on board with something like that. But this glowing thing, this, they're staring at him because he's glowing. So I start to wonder, what is going on with Stephen? And then, then I remember something. He's not the first guy to ever glow in the Bible. Yeah, you heard that right. More than one person has glowed in Scripture. In fact, the very person that the Jews are upset with Stephen talking about was the other person who glowed in Scripture. His name was Moses. Go to Exodus chapter 34. Moses has the incredible opportunity to have face-to-face -face meetings with God. One-on-one -on -one conversations. It is incredible. He goes up on Mount Sinai and God speaks to him one-on-one. -on -one. He gives him these instructions. We know them as the Ten Commandments. And he comes back down the mountain. And Scripture says when he comes down the mountain, his face is glowing like the sun. Uh, Exodus 34, verse 29. When Moses came down Mount Sinai carrying the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, he wasn't aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. So when Aaron and the people of Israel saw the radiance of Moses' face, they were afraid to come near him. But Moses' call, Moses called out to them and asked Aaron and all the leaders of the community to come over, and he talked with them. Then all the people of Israel approached him, and Moses gave them all the instructions the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses finished speaking with them, he covered his face with the veil. But whenever he went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he would remove the veil until he came out again. Then he would give him... Give, then he would give the people whatever instruction the Lord had given him, and the people of Israel would see the radiant glow on his face. So he would put the veil over his face until he returned to speak with the Lord. A lot of theologians over the years have debated what's going on in this verse. 
What is this glow? What is this looking like? Is this, is this just a confidence? Does Moses just approach the people with this new sort of confidence? And he's been with God. I mean, he, he can now speak with a new authority. I know that what I am saying is right because I just, I just heard it from the mouth of God. I, I had a one-on-one meeting with God. I, I have a new boldness about me. Or is he physically glowing? And the vast consensus is, Yes, Moses was physically glowing. Now, Scripture is, it's interesting that Scripture says why he's glowing. He wasn't glowing because he went up on a mountain and got a bunch of, you know, sun rays and comes down the mountain with a glowing tan. No, no, it says he was glowing. Why? Because he had been with God. Being in the presence of God doesn't just change Moses spiritually, doesn't just give him a newfound confidence. Being with God changed Moses physically. Physically changed him. Because that's what happens whenever you stand in the presence of the one who creates everything. The one who speaks and mountains rise up from the sea. That's what happens when you stand in the presence of God as it changes you. And we jump back over to Acts, and we see that Stephen is in the midst of a trial. And all of a sudden, people notice something about him. His face begins to glow. Now, for us, who aren't raised memorizing the Old Testament text, we might not make the instant connection that, oh yeah, Moses' face glowed too whenever he was with God. But for these people... Leaders of the Jewish synagogue, they would have known Exodus 34. They would have known what happened to Moses whenever he was with God. So the moment that Stephen's face begins to glow, they don't think about all of the weird things that we might think about whenever we read that phrase. What they instantly think about is Moses. And you would think that for these people, their mindset might change. That after they make the connection that Moses' face glowed when he was with God and they're now standing in a room with the man who has a glowing face after talking about God, they might make the connection. We should listen to this Stephen guy because he has obviously been with God. We can see it. But hatred's, hatred's ability to blind you is a force that if allowed will keep you from seeing what God is trying to do. You see, these guys hated Stephen so much. He stood against everything that they had believed for so long. He was being different, and he was speaking a different message, living and and preaching the life that Jesus lived. They couldn't see that God was doing something within this man. All they could see was the hate that they had towards him. What happens whenever we get so angry at the world around us that we too may even fail to see what God is actively doing in the lives of those that we come into contact with? Do we love in such a way that allows us to open our eyes to see what God is doing around us? Or do we approach all situations with skepticism, wondering, how is this a trap? 
or a trick? Or how is this going to go against me and everything that I believe? Stephen's face begins to glow because Stephen had been with God. And the message that Stephen is about to bring is one that is spirit-filled and God-given. It is divine. And they look at Stephen and they ask him this one question. Are these accusations true? One question. He's been drugged to court based on a lie, on a couple of lies, but he has been drugged to court based on the lies of people who hate him. And he sets foot in the courts and he's asked one question. Are these accusations true? And what follows is a 51-verse sermon. Be careful of the questions you ask of people with glowing faces. Are these accusations true? Followed by 51 verses of sermon. Stephen starts with Moses and preaches all the way through the death of Jesus. For 51 verses, he takes everything that the Jews believed about God, everything that the Jews believed about the Exodus, everything that the Jews believed about the coming Messiah, and he preaches to them about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. That it is not Moses that is their Savior, it is Moses who spoke about the one who is to come, and he has come, and his name is Jesus. And he does, he does, takes a couple of tactics from Peter, and he's like, yeah, yeah, the one that you crucified, that Jesus, the one that you buried, that Jesus, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That is the Jesus that Moses was preparing the way for. The glow that Moses had on his face, the glow on his face is what Jesus was raised within. He lived at the right hand of his Father. He was there when all things were created. He was there when the law was given to Moses himself. He has been here since the beginning. He will reign true in the end, and you have to turn your lives around and lean into Jesus. He preaches this incredible sermon and it is powerful and it is influential and it ties in all of these little bits of Israel's history and the Jews just sit there and they listen for 51 verses. And it's a really long sermon and I have my own long sermon to preach so we're just gonna let his be. But y'all can go back and read it. But here's what you need to know. The Jews didn't like it because it's against, it's against everything that they want. They wanted a savior to come in and bring authority to their lives. They, they wanted a savior to come in and establish the Jewish people as the rightful people of God, to bring wealth and influence and power back to the, Israel, the Israelite people, to establish them once again as God's chosen so that they can look down their noses at the rest of the world and say, ha ha, you wish that you were us. They wanted their faces to glow in the radiance of God. But Stephen is the one who is glowing. By the power of Jesus, Stephen's face glows in the presence of these Jews who accuse him of lies. 
Some of you, some of you might have said yes to Jesus because somebody thought or somebody told you that it would be cool. Hey, you should be a Christian. Why? Everybody's doing it. Some of you said yes to Jesus because you were raised in it. For as far back as you can trace your family history, they've all been Christians. Some of you said yes to Jesus because a friend of yours brought you to know the greatness and the goodness of our Savior. Some of you said yes to Jesus because whenever you were at your lowest of low, there was no one else around and somebody somewhere had said, hey, if you ever feel that way, just call on this name. And you thought to yourself, oh, I'll give it a shot because what do I have to lose? And you experienced something miraculous that day. Some of you said yes to Jesus not really, know, we're not really knowing what you said yes to. Stephen, however, said yes to Jesus, knowing full well that it might be his death sentence. And it was. I think we come to church, not just here, but in general, and we come to church and we, we enjoy ourselves. Now, I will be the first to admit that I love Sunday mornings. I love it. I love being here in this place with you, my people, and my family. I love to worship. I love to listen to the kids sing Waymaker on the top of their lungs. If y'all were sitting back there, you missed it, and that's your own fault because you should sit up here with the kids. But, I mean, you might get germs, so enter with caution. But I love it. I, I, this is what I love, and I, 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 whenever I'm not here, as I said before, when I'm not here, my, my week is off. Something feels weird about missing Sunday mornings with you guys. But I don't come here. I, I don't come here because it's the cool place to be. I come here because it's where I need to be. I, I need this. To, to be reminded of, of who God is. Not that I have forgotten, but because I sometimes go through a week with battles, some of which I don't feel like I win. Meaning I come here and I'm dealing with some defeats and some frustrations and some struggles and, and wondering what is the role that I am supposed to be playing? What am I actually supposed to be doing? This kingdom of God thing sounds great, but how do I really fit into it? I come with all of those questions, and then I come here, and I'm reminded, I don't have to worry about all that stuff. Because God will direct, and God will guide, and God will give the words to speak when words are needed. God will give me the direction. The Bible says that God's word is the light unto our path. It guides our feet. That is who God is. We don't have to be concerned about what we are going to do for the kingdom of God. We have to be concerned with is are we staying true to what God has called us to be. That's priority number one. And so I come here. I come here and life is good. I come here, and if we're all honest with each other, this is one of the easiest moments of my week. I, I, I don't come here worried about being judged. I, I don't come here worried about being put down. I, I, I don't come here worried about being, 
being told anything negative. I, I just come here knowing that this is a place of God, that I'm going to be with people of God, and I leave this place just feeling good. The same cannot be said whenever I'm leaving the Walmart parking lot. Sometimes you leave the Walmart parking lot, and the first place you probably should come is here. <laughs> but I love this moment. I love that we can come together, that we can speak, and that we can share, that we can sing about what God is doing, and we don't worry. We don't worry about what it's going to cost us. And maybe that's a problem. Now, not don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we should be fearful that people are going to start throwing stones at us, but I just sometimes wonder if our, our view of what it means to be a Christian is that life is good. That, that if we say yes to Jesus and if we join into a church, then man, we, we, get to, we get to join into a free membership country club where we take care of your kids, where we feed you lunch, where you have homemade grade A desserts that you get to enjoy after church. That sounds like a pretty sweet gig if you ask me. Man, that's kind of what it feels like sometimes. It feels like this is just, this is just something fun that we get to do. But for Stephen, the synagogue was the place that he found himself at war. Now, the New Testament church will ultimately become the place that we are today, a place of refuge, a place of freedom, a place of forgiveness. It will ultimately become a place that God will use to bring healing to the nations. Remember, in the book of Acts, we are seeing that very church be formed. It didn't start that way. Everything wasn't dessert auctions and spaghetti dinners. or No, taco. Taco lunches. It didn't start that way. It started in the trenches. It started in the midst of conflict. It started with God taking the world and, and the religion of it and turning it upside down on its head and saying, what we used to do didn't work. It doesn't work. We're going to scrap that plan and I'm going to bring something new and his name is going to be Jesus. And so we see Stephen preached this incredible sermon, this incredible sermon. But one thing that we never see Stephen do throughout the entire time is answer the question. Remember, it started with one question. Are these accusations true? And he never even answers the question. He preaches a sermon. And it took me a while to figure out why. And then it hit me. Stephen knew his mission. And his mission was to be a witness. See, witnesses, witnesses bring account to the questions. Witnesses bring story to the accusations. Witnesses bring context and content in the middle of court. Witnesses are not judges. Witnesses are not defenders. Witnesses tell the story. And in Acts 
In Acts 1, in Acts 1, Jesus gives this instruction to his apostles before he leaves. The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know, to asking when the kingdom of God will come. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it doesn't need defending in the sense that we think of a defense. Because the gospel of Jesus is already victorious. The gospel of Jesus cannot lose because it's already won. And Stephen is doing exactly what Jesus told his people to do in the, back in the book of Luke. Jesus says, you are going to be put on trial. He says, you are going to be put up against it. People will drag you into courts. People will bring you into places of, of, of imprisonment and put you on trial. But he says this, uh, Luke 21, verse 12 through 18. But, be, but before all of this occurs, before Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom, before all of that occurs, there will be a time of great persecution. And you will be dragged into synagogues and prisons, and you will stand trial before kings and governors because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to defend yourself. Oh, I'm sorry. I got that wrong. Because that's how a lot of us act. People, people speak against our faith. We become defensive. People speak against our Jesus. We, we become defensive. Because that is our nature, to be defensive. But that is not the instruction Jesus gives his people. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. Revelation says that we beat Satan. We beat Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the power of the testimony. Not by being defensive. Not by telling Satan that he's wrong. Not by telling Satan our defense for all of the things that we did. No, no. We don't become defensive. We become preachers. We defeat the evil by the blood of the Lamb and by the power of his testimony. This will be your opportunity to tell them about me. Whenever you are on trial, don't worry about your defense. Tell them about me. Whenever you are up against the wall, don't worry about your defense. Tell them about me. And then he says this in verse 14. So don't worry in advance about how you will answer the charges against you. For I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. Even those closest to you, your parents, your brothers, your relatives, and your friends will betray you and will even kill some of you. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. So about that joining Jesus' movement for the country club benefits, he seems to have a little bit different approach. Believing in Jesus sometimes comes at a cost. But not just believing in Jesus. Being who Jesus has asked you to be will definitely come at a cost. And Stephen finds himself in the midst of this trial in which he doesn't even answer the question. 
He just preaches a sermon. He just goes and tells people about Jesus. Now I grew up knowing a verse that talked about defending the gospel. And so as I was reading the story of Stephen, it bothered me that he didn't defend himself. Because I grew up knowing that, no, no, you're supposed to defend the gospel. That's who we are as, as Christians. And so I had to go back because I couldn't remember where it was. So I had to go back and find where that verse comes from. And you know who writes it? Paul. Paul says that he gets put in prison for defending the gospel. So if I'm going to preach a sermon and say that the gospel doesn't need defending, but then Paul goes on to say, no, 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 that I got put in prison because I was defending the gospel. I don't want you guys to think that I am going against what Paul was saying, or vice versa, that Paul was going against me. How dare he? So let's bring some clarity to it. Because I don't like the idea of not being able or not being instructed to defend the gospel message. I, it bothers me. It makes me feel like we're put in a position of weakness. Now, there's a whole other sermon that could be preached on the weakness and the meekness of what a Christian looks like. And that may come at a different time. But for today, I want to remain on this platform that the gospel does not need defending. So, let's look at it real quick. Philippians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul is writing. He is in prison. And here's what he says. It's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know that I have been appointed to, here it is, defend the good news. Those others do not preach, the, the others preach, do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my claims, my chains, more painful to me. But that doesn't matter. Whatever their motives are, false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way. So I rejoice, and I will continue to rejoice. So Paul says that he's gotten put in prison for defending the good news. So you're thinking, ah, oh, Stephen, there it is. We are supposed to be defensive. We are supposed to defend the gospel. Whenever people come to us and put us down and say that our message isn't true, we are supposed to defend. Not necessarily. But that's what it says. Yep, in English. Anybody, re anybody read Greek? I don't. So if you do, you can help me with my own Bible studies. But in Greek, that word defend does not mean defend. It means explained. But it means to be explained in a way to bring clarity. That's what the Greek word that is translated to defend means, to explain, to bring clarity, which obviously a lot of us, that's the kind of explanation we want, is one that brings clarity, not one that brings more confusion. So to defend the gospel is to bring clarity to the gospel, to speak about it in such a way that it makes sense to people. Does anybody know another term for what that might be? Preaching. That's what preaching is. Speaking the good news, the message of Christ in a way that hopefully brings clarity, in a way that allows people to apply it to their lives, to see the life-changing goodness that is found in Jesus. And I can prove it because Paul says at the beginning that some people preach out of envy and rivalry, while other people preach out of goodwill and out of love. 
And those people, the people who preach out of goodwill and out of love, do so because they know the position that defending the gospel has put Paul in. The solution, the solution for Paul, the solution to help Paul, the solution to help Paul while he is in prison is not to defend Paul, but what? To preach the gospel in love. That's what Paul himself says. The solution for his predicament isn't to go out and create a campaign to get Paul out of prison. Paul's solution for himself is that the good news continue to be preached, not defend. I wonder how far off we get sometimes in our spiritual conversations. Whenever people come to us with pain and with problems and we tell them about Jesus and they instantly say, look, that stuff might work for you, but it doesn't work for me. And then we go on to become defensive. Well, it doesn't work for you because you don't believe. If you would just believe, it would work for you. Why don't you believe? Instead, Jesus says, tell them about me. Tell them what I've done for you. Tell them what I've done for others. Preach the gospel. You see, preaching does something. If you're serving this morning, you can make your way back as Stephen dies. There you go. Giving you the ending. Because Stephen doesn't answer the question. And if he were to answer the question, I don't know if it would have changed the outcome at all. Some people wonder if Stephen would have defended himself, would he have gotten off? If he would have been able to prove to the, peop- to the, the courts that he was lied about, could he have gotten, gotten off? Would he still be alive? I don't know. But what I do know is he preaches a pretty incredible sermon, and it changes the hearts of people. What I do know is that instead of answering their question, he does exactly what God instructed him to do, to witness. And in Acts chapter 7, this is what happens Verse 54, the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, here it is, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look. I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And they put their hands over their ears and they began shouting. They rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. In the midst of trial. In the middle of the pain, in the middle of the death, in all of the places 
that I would see myself trying to defend myself, trying to change my situation, trying to talk people out of what they were about to do with me, change their minds, do anything that I could to change everything about everything that is happening because I don't like any of it. It's all gone wrong. Stephen says, forgive them, God. Don't hold this against them. I look at that. And if I'm honest, it sends chills down my spine. Because I want to be like Jesus. And Jesus on the cross says the same thing. To forgive them. Because they don't even know what they're doing. It's this element of what it means to be a Jesus follower that I think we so often want to set aside because we see it as weakness. We so often want to set it aside because we see see it as as how can we let the world step all over who we are and what we're about. We, We should defend who we are and what we are about. But Jesus says, I'm not asking you to be defenders. I want you to be a witness. I want you to speak in such a way that love prevails. I want you to speak in such a way where people's hearts and minds are challenged. Don't just defend yourself. You are already defended. Jesus has already claimed you. You have already won. Speaking defense into a world that is already defensive isn't going to change the hearts and the souls of man. The Bible says that it's only by the Spirit of God that the Spirit is awakened. It is only by the miracle of God that man can know Jesus intimately. Your defense isn't going to change that, but your love will. And Stephen does something. Stephen does something that is the ultimate of examples of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. In the middle of accusation, in the middle of a false trial, in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the death, Stephen. Stephen speaks as if he were Jesus. And the last thing that he does with his life is extend forgiveness. This morning, we approach the table as we do every week. And every week, I try in some way to bring communion into what we've talked about, but this week, it's easy. (laughs) Because at the cross, Jesus offered you an ultimate forgiveness. You see, Jesus knew that we weren't going to be good at this Christ-likeness thing. He knew that we would fail. He knew that we would struggle. He knew that in moments that we were supposed to love, that we would defend, that we would speak against. But even in the midst of knowing all of that, he still took the cross. For imperfect people, for people who would still break his laws and break his commands, He still took the cross because the last thing that Jesus does on the cross is forgive. Some of you aren't good at forgiveness. 
And I'm not even talking about forgiveness to other people, but forgiveness to yourself. Some of you, you live life in bondage to something that you've said or not said, done or not done. Something that you wish you could go back and fix, but you'll never get the chance to, and you've lived with that. And what that's done is it's kept you in a place of inability. Inability to speak in love because you find it hard to love yourself. Inability to speak in hope because your own life isn't hopeful. An inability to speak in forgiveness because you yourself haven't forgiven yourself. If there's one thing that I want you to take away from Stephen today, it's not that we're all called to be great preachers. It's not that we're all called to be martyrs. It's not that we're all called to be miracle workers. It's this, that we were all called to be a witness. And it is impossible to witness to the forgiveness of our Savior if you yourself don't live in forgiveness. Imagine a world with churches that were truly full of forgiven people. Because forgiven people will forgive people. And that's a miracle that only God knows how it works. In this place this morning, as you take this communion, if you have yet to forgive, would you take this opportunity? You can just do it sitting with yourself. Just praying, God, for so long I've lived in guilt and shame. But today I forgive, as you have already forgiven me. If there's somebody in this room today that you need to forgive, biblically, before you take communion, you're supposed to go over and seek that forgiveness. And we may not preach that very often, but today seems to be a pretty good day for that. So feel free to get up and go and seek forgiveness or give forgiveness. This is a non-judgmental place. If you see people get up and walk across the room to go and forgive somebody, don't look to them in shame, but look to them in admiration because you know that that needs to be you. Maybe just to yourself. Can we be a church this morning that embraces the element that I most admire in the preacher Stephen? God, forgive. Don't hold this sin against them. Let's pray. God, we, we gather in this place surrounded by, with, by each other, embraced by you. And God, as we look at the life and the, the ministry and the love and the example of Stephen this morning, God, for me and for maybe others in this room, I see so many places that we can do better. And God, I know that we live in a culture, in a world that is dominated by fear and hate and evil. That a message like this 
It just sounds so hard to do, but God, it is who you've called us to be. God, will you change our hearts this morning to beat in the rhythm of Jesus, to move us to a place that is of love and is of forgiveness, because that is the kingdom that we desire. Awaken us to that place this morning, God. In Christ's name. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We would love for you to connect with us weekly, so please be sure to subscribe to this channel. We would also ask that if you have been encouraged by this ministry, would you consider partnering with us financially? Your support helps us continue our mission of helping people move from where they are to where God is calling them to be. You can find all the ways to give at graceodessa.com give. Thank you.